0: And today's buzz phrase is banks, big data, and risk. What do they have to do with each other? Yes, let's look at banking. Banking is a data-driven business, and with reams of data coming at banks every millisecond, probably faster than that, this translates to risky business. How? In terms of liquidity risk management, credit risk management, and so much more. Our experts speak. Today we'll be hearing from Simon Paris. He says, as reported more or less daily, banks continue to face multiple risk and compliance challenges. He asks the question, are they not willing or not able to do proper risk and compliant management? We'll hear from Simon in just a moment. Ralph Silva joins us and Ralph says, banks have to find some humility mm, and realize that retailers, auto companies and grocery chains are far better at managing and mining data than they are. He advises banks, steal it if you can. We'll be hearing more words of wisdom and gems from Ralph Silva. Jane Griffin joins us today and she says it's understanding the risks in the market and how I respond to those risks or any other components that might jeopardize my success. There's our R word risk. Jane will be expanding on that and rounding out our esteemed panel today is Craig Rich. He says the price of light is less than the cost of darkness, of course, quoting AC Nielsen. And Craig explains too often. Organizations are challenged with creating a business case for improving their data and analytical capabilities, but in today's competitive landscape, it's not whether you can afford to invest in analytics, but whether you can afford not to. There's the hitch. I'll be welcoming all our guests in a couple of minutes. Thank you for joining us. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and our topic today is one you don't want to miss. It's banks, big data risks analytics to the rescue. Yes, we all need a rescuer. I want to thank you all for joining us today. I'll be telling you about my guests in a moment. But for those of you who are listening in the banking industry, hey, you want to be a banking game changer? Want to know more? There's a banner on our Voice America Business Channel page. Click it or go to spr.ly forward slash game dash changers. You know who you are. We've got a free brochure for you on banking innovations that can help you run Better. Now I want to introduce my special guest. Let's start off with Simon Paris. He's the global head of banking at SAP. That's why he's on the show today. He is responsible for SAP's end to end footprint and ambition in the banking market, which today covers more than 3,000 banking clients. Simon, thank you for joining us. How are you today?
2: I'm very good, Bunny, and thank you for having me on the show.
0: Pleasure. Can't wait for more words of wisdom for you from you. I know you have a great perspective because this is what you do every day. Also joining us is Ralph Silva. Ralph is a VP of Banking Strategies for HFS Research. He covers the strategic imperatives of universal banks throughout EMEA. Sounds huge. And Ralph, I must tell you, is a broadcaster, and he's in the big time. He appears every day on the BBC, CNN, CNBC, and even Bloomberg TV. I'm going to have to watch my step with you. Welcome, Ralph Silva. How are you?
3: I'm very well, and it's nice to be here from rainy London.
0: Thank you. Sorry, it's rainy. It's uh, sort of sunny here in New York. We'll talk more about the weather when we get to our Coffee Break segment. Jane Griffin is a Deloitte Analytics America's leader. She understands the challenges businesses face as they struggle to make sense of, hey, what are we talking about today, data. Jane says, it seems as though the information age is quickly becoming the, what do we do with all this information age? Jane Griffin, welcome to Coffee Break. How are you? Bonnie, I'm doing great today, and um, I'm uh, joining you from sunny Toronto. I'm glad Toronto is sunny. We're going to have to turn this into coffee break and weather break radio. And Craig Rich rounding out our panel. Craig's a partner in the IBM Global Business Services SAP practice, and he's also the North American SAP data and analytics leader for IBM with 16 years of experience. Craig Rich, and how are you, and where are you calling from today?
4: I'm doing great and I'm calling from very cold Minneapolis.
0: Boy, we've got the full spread here. We've got everybody all over the place. So let's do a deep dive back into the quotes. I'm going to start with Simon Paris. How about a minute and a half each, and let's find out who you are and what your point of view is. Simon, you said, as reported more or less daily, and I have a feeling more or less by the minute, banks continue to face multiple risk and compliance challenges, and you pose this huge question. Are they not willing or not able to do proper risk and compliance management? Talk to me, Simon Paris. What are you thinking?
2: Yeah, so it's a little bit controversial, a little bit provocative, but as you said, pretty much every day, every minute, you pick up a newspaper, there's a compliance challenge and a risk topic, which is uh, pretty much a headline. So on the willing side, are they willing? You know, generally speaking, nobody voluntarily subjects themselves to supervision. So I wouldn't describe banks as willing. They're willing to get it done because they know it's something that has to get done. But is it uh, something they willingly put themselves through? I wouldn't say so. In terms of the risk and compliance management, this is a huge topic. I would say it's probably 60 to 80% of all the dialogue that we're having at the senior level in banks. So, yeah, more on that later, but it's a huge topic for them.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And and tell me something. You say as reported more or less daily. Is the press that's talking about this, Simon? Is it is it Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn? Is it in social media? Is it the the business press that's pointing the finger at banks and saying, Hey, what's going on here? Why are you becoming a risky business? Where is this this press coming from?
2: Yeah, I would say it's pretty much everywhere. It's heavily in the public domain. If you look over mm-hmm. the last four years, I think a huge amount of trust has been lost by the general public in the banks and, as a result, in some of their government and institutional bodies about the role that those were placed uh, supposed to play in aspects of supervision. And, as a result, it's a mainstream dialogue. It's in all of the press, whether it be popular or business. And it's also a topic of, uh, you know, I live here in Europe, and you can imagine the Eurozone crisis right now. This is a, Mm a dinner table topic. It's everywhere, from questioning the governments, questioning the institutions, and questioning the banks themselves.
0: Thank you. And there's nothing more social than dinner table topic. And by the way, last week, our topic here on Coffee Break with Game Changers, we talked about the future of transforming corporate banking. And the T word, the trust word, is one I brought up in the first segment. So thank you for introducing that here, Simon. Big, important word. Ralph Silva, let's turn to you. You say banks have to find some humility and realize that who? Retailers, auto companies, grocery chains are better at managing and mining data. Steal it if you can. What exactly do you want them to steal, Ralph Silva?
3: Well, let me add a word, not just humility, but humanity. What we're talking about here is over the past 30 years, what we have seen is the introduction of technology to disconnect the human being from the relationship manager. What we've been trying to do so aggressively is to get human beings to connect to banks' back office. As a result, we are limited in how we can manage the data, and that's the data that we're using to judge the needs and the desires of the customers. Whereas 30 years ago, in the days of our parents and our grandparents, it was human beings trying to figure out what other human beings want. And guess what? If you look at retailers, you look at grocery stores, you look at automotive manufacturers, you look at all these other industries, they've got it. What we need now is for the banks to get back to their history and start understanding that money is completely emotional and you have to deal with human beings, with human beings, not just data sources.
0: Very interesting. I like the word humanity. I think that's what people say. You know, we all have the images. uh, Some of us still have the images of the crash way back in 39, and we felt banks were inhuman. People felt that way. So very interesting to add humility and humanity. Thank you, Ralph. We'll be talking a lot more with you later. Jane Griffin, understanding the risks in the market and how you respond to those risks that might jeopardize the success. Talk to me, Jane, in terms of banking, where do you see the biggest risks and what about the role of analytics in handling these risks? Well, if you you look at every
5: perspective, the compliance risk, regulatory, um, the credit risk that that banks are facing with who to lend to and how to help my clients manage their portfolios, so I am uh, focusing on the high-risk clients, not the low-risk clients, and and, uh, helping them through that. Um, through coaching and and um, mentoring from a bank perspective, even mm-hmm. to cyber risk, um, banks are under attack every day from an invasion um, of all sorts. Um, so from every angle from my own operations and where do I uh, operate my shared services center around the world and what um, what signals do I uh, pay attention to to help me manage um, my uh, technology and my labor force to the customer relationship to the shareholders and regulatory. So they're under pressure from every angle, and um, the only way out of this is to through through big data, and the use of information to help them fend off and make the right decisions and investments.
0: Thank you, Jane. And you just added a term in there. You said mentoring and coaching, and that goes to humanity. And I'm going to flip the word humanity to the other side. We're talking about the humanity of banks to their customers. What about the humanity of the bankers? They are people too. There is somebody sitting in that chair making those decisions. We'll talk about that later. Craig Rich, I want to get you in before the break. You quote A.C. Nielsen, the price of light is less. Then the cost of darkness. You're talking about organizations being challenged with the business case for improving. And then you say, in today's competitive landscape, here's the key it's not whether you can afford to invest in analytics, but whether you can afford not to. Tell me more, Craig Rich.
4: Sure, Bonnie. You know, I really like this quote by AC Nielsen. While it's simple, it's very powerful. I mean, you look at where banks are today, they're, they're focused, they're facing increased risk and regulatory pressures. All the panel members have talked about that. You know they need to develop better customer experiences across all channels. I think most important, they need to develop new revenue streams. And I believe data and analytics, and the bank's ability to integrate big data, whether it's social or unstructured data, and emails and blogs, they need to integrate this data with traditional back office data in real time. And that will be the key enabler for banks to to differentiate and, and reduce risk. You know, there's so much data available today. You mentioned that. You know, I think there's over 300 million transactions every day in U.S. banks alone, and you couple that with the the massive amounts of social data that's available across the web. You know, it offers banks incredible opportunities, but also also just incredible challenges in how they harness this data. And I think it's imperative for banks to develop an approach to to take advantage of this big data. You know, moving, they need to move away from the traditional batch processing and really into a real-time analytics environment and strategy. So every time they interact with a the customer, they have these analytics available today. I think that's key to differentiation and key to compete in the future.
0: And, Craig, let me ask you about the cost of darkness. We have just about 30 seconds before we go to break. Just expand on this. My question is, are these banks in the dark really? Are they really there, or are they just dipping their toe in the water a little bit and saying, hmm, analytics, that should be on my A list. Can we afford it? Can we not? Should we make the business case? How, How far do you think U.S. banks have come in terms of realizing that analytics are the key to their continued success and survival? What do you think?
4: Yeah, Buddy, I think they're getting there. I I think what what we need to see banks do is have a more cohesive and integrated strategy across the enterprise. Right now, you have different channels doing different spot projects. We really need an enterprise holistic view because we have to understand how the customers are interacting with the banks across all channels. And if we don't know that, the information is not as powerful. So I think they're dipping their toe in. I think they need a collective and cohesive strategy to really achieve the results that are available.
0: Well, I hope they're listening today so they can hear talk about collective, the collective wisdom of you, Simon Paris, Ralph Silva, and Jane Griffin, my special guests, and figure out what it is they need to do to move forward. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP here on the Business Channel. When we come back, what else? Coffee Break time. We'll be finding out what my guests are drinking today. Then we'll dive way into the bottom of the pool and find out more about banks, big data, and risks. Analytics to the rescue. Time for our break. Brad out.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers.
0: And the key word here is Coffee Break. Let's find out what my guests are drinking today. Mr. Simon Paris, what's in your cup today, Simon?
2: Well, first of all, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Bonnie, good evening, because I'm here in Europe, so it's kind of getting late already in the day. So I'm having an Irish coffee. And if you said, well, why am I having an Irish coffee? First of (laughs) all, I like the Irish coffee with an espresso. And the reason why I like an espresso is back to the topic earlier. Banks need to get things done quickly. So it's Mm -hmm. all about espresso and Irish coffee because it's got a little tot of whiskey in there. And you know what? That gives you the confidence that what they need to do can get done. (laughs) So that's what I'm drinking today, a nice (laughs) Irish coffee.
0: I love it. I've never heard such a good business explanation for Irish coffee. Thank you, Simon. That was charming. Ralph Silva, what are you drinking today?
3: Well actually I, I kind of want to have uh, what Simon's having now that I think. I do I do too honey. <laughs> in fact uh because it is late here in Europe I'm actually drinking ginger ale. I don't even drink coffee in the afternoon. Don't think I need it. I drink ginger ale simply because when I was a kid my mom used to give it to me on a popsicle stick. I am originally Canadian and uh back then back when I was young uh, you just had to put it outside and it would freeze almost instantly and I just got used to it and that's what I drink on a a uh, daily basis.
0: And I just heard a little bit of that charming Canadian twang in your voice when you mentioned it. You're the first one to mention Ginger Ale. We've done about 85 shows in this series. We used to have, we have somebody who likes to drink warm Dr. Pepper for breakfast in their coffee cup. First mentioned Ginger Ale. And by the way, Ralph, you and I share something in common besides being broadcasters. They don't let me, they don't let me have caffeine on show days. So there. Let's move to talking about charming. Let's move to Jane Griffin. What are you drinking today, Ms. Griffin?
5: Well, Bonnie, I'm a I'm a good Atlanta girl, so I'm drinking a Diet Coke, the best breakfast drink in the morning.
0: Oh, hey. It, do you have ice in that, by the way, Jane, or is that just straight out of the bottle in no, the cup? No, straight out of the can. <laughs> oh, that's my girl. Okay. Craig Rich, what are you drinking? Let's add to the fun here.
4: Sure. I, I wish I had something exotic in my cup this morning, <laughs> but it's actually just uh, the norm for me now, which is a large decaf coffee from Caribou Coffee. So those who have been in the, the great Midwest are familiar with Caribou Coffee. And I think the great thing, Bonnie, is I've only been to this location a few times. Uh, I walked in this morning. They already had my order ready for me when I arrived. You know, it could be a Midwest thing or it could be just the brand. I think it obviously creates a nice customer experience. And I, I believe that's what we're gonna be talking a lot about today for banks and how they can use information that drive better customer experiences.
0: What a beautiful segue, Mr. Rich. I appreciate that. Let me say that Malcolm, who is our official designated tweeter and my co-producer, Malcolm says he's back from several road trips, and he's very happy, and he means very happy, to be comforted on a rainy day in Palo Alto by his Equator Coffees Alligator French Roast, And we're waiting for Sean to tell us what he's drinking, and we'll tweet that. We'll get that from Twitter when we can. Okay, let's go back to our conversation. So many interesting threads about banks, humility, humanity, analytics, big data being bombarded. I want to kick this part off with Simon Paris, Global Head of Banking at SAP. Simon, you told me before the show that the biggest issue – is missing transparency. And let's talk about real-time analytics on the show. We've talked before about right-time analytics. Talk about what kind of transparency is missing, to whom is it not transparent, and where do analytics come into play. And then we'll, we'll have everybody join in. Go ahead, Simon.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So let me let me try and give two examples, and there are many mm-hmm. examples we could give. So, so one example, going back to what Ralph was talking about, about banks knowing their customers or a human knowing a human so one aspect of transparency I think we can talk about on this call is, is there just simply too much data for a human to know another human? Or has behavior changed so much that maybe, for example, many of us know people who have never been to a bank in years. Do they mm-hmm. find it easy to know their customer in that sense? So that's one form of transparency and I think that's where some of the points that Craig was making about big data and the data that exists in the social space can really help people to know those kind of customers more, even if they never, ever set foot in a branch and even if they rarely call a call center. So that's one way of looking at transparency. How well do we know our customers? And the answer can be surprisingly well, given the amount of data out there that we can harvest and that we can manage on behalf of those customers. The other aspect of transparency we can talk about is the one that I think Jane was talking to, which is around risk. Where is the risk? And in what form does the risk manifest itself? We talked about, and I think you mentioned this, Bonnie, right up the front, about credit risk and liquidity risk and market risk and strategic risk and so on. But what many banks tell us is we don't really know where the risk is. It's been syndicated out. It's been transferred or sold in packages to somebody else. Where is Uh the risk? So there's a systemic concern to this topic as well.
0: Jane, I want to bring you into this. Thank you, Simon. Jane, uh, you mentioned, and I, I quoted you in the opening without quoting you directly, banking is a data-driven business. You say it's about turning data into information, and here's the key. Right now, data is growing exponentially in terms of all the technology that's been coming into the banking industry, and we know that floodgate is open. Let's talk about the three forces that are really of greatest concern to bankers today, regulatory reform, systemic, systemic risk, and customer analytics. Jane, you want to touch on that, and then we'll go for from- from there. Certainly. You know,
5: I was with one of our clients uh, recently as the CIO of a, a global bank, and he said during the history of the bank, the 200 year history prior to 2007, they had created three petabytes of information. Since 2007, they have created they have quadrupled that in a very short period of time, so they are in fact overwhelmed. but I think um the the points we were talking about early of taking that enterprise view um, mm-hmm. is taking hold in many banks across the 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 u uh, s and North America, and I'm sure in Europe of naming the asset and owning the asset and managing the asset through appointing those chief data officers and those chief analytics officers reporting to the highest level. And their first and foremost concern is is regulatory. How do we um, visually look at our risk and tell you where our toxic assets are? and how do we reserve the right amount for those risks. The more insight that they have into the data, the more confident they can be at their reserves and the report out to the regulators. So it's paramount to to be able to to do that. From a systemic and credit risk standpoint, understanding where the next explosion is going to be um, and being able to um, put the right controls uh, and the right people and the right processes in place. It's not just about the data, it's also about the people and, and how they're managing and making decisions and making those data driven decisions rather than the instinct. And I think more and more leaders and banks are saying, what did the data say when I'm, I'm making those, uh, those credit, credit decisions. From a customer relationship, we can know our customers. We can look at a micro market to understand um, the age, the demographics, the portfolios, the interest, the mentoring that our, our clients need um, to, to really build the right relationship with, their, with the banks. And hopefully that banking relationship is a for-life relationship, uh, not one that's shopped from, from product to product and day to day.
0: And that's a real challenge. Craig Rich, I want to bring you in here. And, uh, Ralph, don't worry. I'm saving you for the last in the segment because we have something (laughs) special to talk about. I know what your passion is. Craig, you say banks need to make decisions quickly on whether a customer they do not know well will pay their loan back. And to me, this goes right to what Jane was talking about, the word toxic, toxic loans. And you say real-time, there's that real-time again, integrated customer analytics is the only way for banks to reduce the risk. Tell me more. What do you mean by integrated customer analytics?
4: Sure, sure, so, so Bonnie, maybe going back to the way Simon opened up this segment on you know, is there just too much information about our customers for banks to really be able to to interact with it, and I think that's right, and I so I think this real time integration and 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 relationships with our customers the the challenge is how do you put this data in context to enable real time interaction? And there's so much data out there, as Simon mentioned, we've all talked about it. So I think the power is to, a lot of work goes into this, but if we can do this and put it in context and drive when a, when a, When a sales rep is talking to a customer for that split second, they have the right information in the right context so they can interact with that customer. They know all the interactions, all the different ways they've interacted with the bank. And I think that's key. And it is not an easy thing, but there's a lot of work that goes in the back end to make that interaction very, very simple and streamlined. But it's key that they have up-to-date information about that customer when they get that split-second interaction with the customer.
0: Split-second interaction is true. Okay, Ralph, I want to talk to you about money laundering. You're talking about anti-money laundering taking, this is provocative, taking on greater importance with regulators over the next 12 to 24 months. Tell me, how does money laundering relate to what we're talking about? Banks overwhelmed with SCADs and petabytes, zettabytes, yottabytes, any letter of the alphabet bytes of data coming at them, toxic loans, regulators breathing down their neck. Talk to me, where does money laundering fit into this, Ralph? Ralph?
3: Well, it's very simple. It's Money laundering is going to be the catalyst for banks to actually start understanding the data they have. We have seen the governments and regulators stop taking excuses. They're no longer accepting unvalid excuses as to the fact that you may not know enough about your customer. If I might just take a point and just discuss Mm -hmm. what Simon said. Simon initially said that he's not convinced uh, that we're getting all the data. Well, I'm not entirely sure that we are not getting all the data. I think we're getting data in the wrong way. If I might share a very brief story with you. I have one of the organizations I work with a lot. is Monty Monte de, de Siena. Um, and uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this particular bank, it was actually founded mm-hmm. in 1472. By the way, that's 20 years before Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic. I
0: was just doing the math. Thank you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and if you look back at this bank and the way they used to deal with customers in the early days, they used to have page after page after page on each individual customer. And what they would Discuss in each page were notations made by people. So there was a particular gentleman called Giovanni Montiero, and he was a farmer, and you would see notations saying, we visited his farm, and when we saw his farm, we suggested he plant this particular kind of seed. That information that they, uh, they had at that time, we can get to date but it's under the unstructured data category. And my argument with the bank is not that we can't do it, it's that we're doing it wrong. If we were to able to actually capture the unstructured data and analyze it, then we'd be able to make the same kind of decisions that our forefathers made. And anti-money laundering is going to be the catalyst to get us there because governments are no longer going to take excuses from anybody. We're going to have to learn how to deal with this data more accurately, and it's unstructured data, that's the secret.
0: Ralph, I'm going to bring in one more of your talking points just before we go on break. Uh, Brad, we'll take a 54 second break. Thank you. I'm I'm shopping for breaks here now. Uh, Ralph, you say analytics are the only viable answer to identifying unusual money flows. What's an unusual money flow to you in your experience?
3: Well, if somebody starts transferring a thousand British pounds or a thousand dollars a month and then one month they start transferring five thousand dollars or five thousand pounds, something that is not norm, something that is not within the norm of a human being. Now in our forefathers, now, I'm sorry to keep going back to this.
0: No, that's in our okay. Grandparents
3: day, the bank manager would notice that. They would notice if the same person that came in time after time was doing something weird, and they would stop it or question it because it was weird. The technology has to adapt to the same types of things, and it's about analyzing the unstructured data for us to find those elements. Again, this is the catalyst. It's not a catalyst to get us to a solution. In other words, let's capture more of that unstructured data.
0: Very interesting. It goes back to what we mentioned a couple of minutes ago about an integrated customer view, integrated customer analytics, understanding the total customer. And you know, Ralph, what you just said and a little bit about it, what everything everybody said reminds me of your typical crime TV show, your crime procedural. What do they do when they look at a suspect? Does he have any unusual banking habits recently? Oh my goodness, 10 minutes before he disappeared, he withdrew $10,000 and there's 20 cents left in his account. Where did the money go? What did they they say follow the money. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to Coffee Break with Game Changers presented by SAP. We are following the money in the terms of data, big data, banks. Where are they heading? What can they do to leverage the value of great analytical tools that are out there? We're talking to Ralph Silva, Jane Griffin. We're talking to Craig Rich and Simon Paris. A lot more coming back. And as our friend Greg Chase likes to say, don't even think of touching that app. Brad out.
1: SAP Systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com. Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business.
0: And let's, so let's perform a little analytics of our own here. Let's talk about a word that's somewhat new to me, unbanked, underbanked. Simon Paris, you're it. What do you think? What are we talking about here?
2: Yeah, Bonnie, thanks for raising it. So This is an area of personal interest, and I think it would be fun to talk about it with the panel here. So banking the unbanked or banking the underbanked, what does that mean? Well, quite literally, it means how can we bring, as society and as companies, banking services to people who today have zero access to banking services, they have no banking services at all, or are extremely limited. And I think linking it back to the previous conversation, I think here technology has a role to play. So if I go out to a country like Mexico, population of 130, 140 million people, 70 million adults do not have access to banking services of any note. Now, if I go out to South Africa, similar kind of picture, 10 million people have no access to banking services. Now what we see, and this applies also to insurance, what we see, and this can be microfinance as a topic, is through technology we can bring down the cost of opening an account and using mobile devices almost to zero. And the beauty of this for society is when we can bring people into banking services for the first time, this is goodness for society. It reduces fraud. It helps with tax collection. It reduces cash costs. It improves personal security. And it's the very first step in helping these people to create wealth for the first time. You know, I was fascinated in taking that example of South Africa again, that when Standard Bank Bank of South Africa, one of the big banks in South Africa, offered this to their customers, one of the first things they started to do was to save for their death, to save for funeral plans. And it was quite unexpected and quite revealing about how people were saving for that wealth so as not to pay or pass on that cost to their family members. So I think this is something that collectively in society we need to strive for much more. And I'm hoping that as we look into the future, we can bring hundreds of millions of people into banking services for the first time.
3: Simon, it's Ralph here. I think you make a great point in that the unbanked mm-hmm. is, is a huge opportunity, first of all, for the banking industry. But let's be clear on this. that There are some risks involved with dealing with the unbanked. And it really comes around not just the money laundering, but the know your customer. I think the biggest problem that we're having, and, and it's very wise that you bring up South Africa, you know, the work that they're doing in areas like Natal and Sueto are, are very leading edge. But the problem is with the mobile structure or the mobile devices is that the amount of information that banks would like to get from the mobile structures is quite limited, which adds a tremendous amount of risk from a know-your-customer perspective. I'm not sure if you would agree with this, but I personally believe that for us to deal with the unbanked, that mobile banking services have to extend their capture of data. And it's not always asking the customer what they want. Maybe sometimes it's geolocating to know where they are and to know what kind of activity they use. But until we get the mobile devices to a point where we can gather there are enough information so that we do know our customers, I think we're going to be lacking in the promotion of this kind of service. Good hey, good
0: Bonnie, points all. Yes, go
3: ahead. Uh, Craig, Craig Rich, I was just going to
0: comment. Please.
3: I think Ralph's
4: on to, to something. I think it's an outstanding idea, and I think it can drive and prove wealth across m- multiple areas. My concern would be How do we know these customers? And I think as we open up new channels to, to integrate with banks, it opens up the risk and we're having a, banks are having a tough time just understanding the customers that they're dealing with in major Mm -hmm. populated areas. We go to some underdeveloped uh, countries. I think it's going to be even more important for these banks to, to have that information that Ralph described available to them. It's out there. Um, but we need to, to get ahead of the game and start getting that information integrated. So I think it is a, an important initiative. My concern is, are the banks ready for
0: it? And, Mike, and, and, I have a quick – go ahead, Jane, and then I have yeah, a question for everyone. Um, Bonnie, I, mm-hmm. I think
5: we might see some uh, new players entering this game. We've already yes. got some a lot of NGOs that are providing um, micro-based funding um, through the world of digital, mobile, and, and Internet technology, and um, – Companies that are moving money like PayPal um, that may be the biggest mm-hmm. bank in the world at some point in our lives are um, uh, literally changing the game on uh, how banking and commerce is done. So it may be outside the the nine dots of the, the banking format um, to be able to serve this market adequately because the use of Digital media geolocator and knowing the intimate intimacy of that individual and what services they need and want and should have, um, may, maybe new players in, in new media.
0: Okay, I have a couple of questions for the panel on this thread we've opened up. Very, very interesting, by the way. Number one, do banks really want to go after the unsophisticated, I'll use that term very broad brush, meaning undigital population that they cannot collect a lot of information from easily? Number two, does it mean banks would have to go back in time, as Ralph was talking about, back in history and become old-fashioned banks where somebody actually walked into the bank and handed an envelope of money or maybe a a coconut hollowed out with some coins in it? It, I don't know what that customer would look like. Number three, what is the profitability factor in these undeveloped areas? Is it worthwhile for banks to go after these until there's more sophistication in terms of digital access and in terms of being able to provide a stream of easy data for the bank to understand this new, currently unbanked customer? Anybody want to tackle that? Wide open. Somebody sure. jump in. Uh,
3: yeah, it's Ralph here, I, and I'm, I'm happy to tackle some of those areas. I, I think there's two areas. First of all, do you want want to deal with an unbanked uh, person. Well, let me just say the following. Bill Gates at one point was unbanked. All of us at one point were unbanked. The question isn't do you deal with them is how much can they grow? And you just don't know how much they can grow. So you want to get as many customers as possible. But secondly, and probably more importantly, is banks are a social tool. Just because a customer isn't incredibly profitable doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. In fact, there are many countries in the world that make it a requirement that banks serve customers. And you know what? I believe that's exactly the way it should be. Everyone should have access to a bank account. It's a social imperative.
0: I like that. I like that. Thank you very much. Points well taken. Now, Simon, you want to jump in on this? I'm sure you have a point of view.
2: Yeah, I want to echo what Ralph said on that point. I think there's um, there's two motives why banks want to do this. One is they're mandated to do so in certain geographies. You go to India, for example, uh, they have a mandate to offer at least 300 million more accounts within three years to rural and uh, non-urban areas, right, so they're mandated to do it. Others because they choose to. They see it as a business of the future and they see it also for the social good of that society. You know, looping back to some of the previous conversation about know your customer, and I, th- I think yeah, I just wanted to echo what Jane was saying, which is, you know what, I think the problem presents the solution, right? So we can use, as PayPal has shown, as Google has shown, as uh, Square has shown, as many of the banks are showing, that we can use the very technology for aspects of authentication. So we can use the mobiles to take photographs of the identification. We can use increasingly certain authentication, such as fingerprinting and so on. And to some of Ralph's points, what we can also do as part of money laundering is look Mm -hmm. for unusual transactions. So one bank we work with in Australia, for example, they look for anything which you've done recently compared to your rolling six-month average, which is two standard deviations away from your norm. And if it is two standard deviations away, it's flagged as potential fraud and a different process can be executed.
0: Okay, thank you. Anybody else want to come in on this? Craig, well, thoughts on this? I, Jane, please Jane. Bonnie, I keep, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, um, I want to hear from you. Go ahead. Yeah, My pleasure. Um,
5: I just want to remind everyone that there, while there are social responsibilities and mandates, um, banks and other institutions still have to make, uh, good credit decisions on, mm-hmm. on where they, they, um, draw the boundaries of risk. Uh, a lot of the regulations that brought the banking system down in the U.S. and, and um, caused the bailout were uh, lending to people who were not um, to real estate that was not going up in value and to people that could not afford um, to, to carry the debt. So we, we also have to balance this with the world economy and make sure that all of our banks are not government-owned in the future.
2: Thank
0: yeah. you for
2: balancing so, that. Yes. Go ahead, Simon. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jane, I think you're exactly right. And um, h- here's an example of where it can be a perfect storm. So if you go to Mexico, there's a wonderful company there called uh, Compartamos, and they focus purely on microfinance, purely lending primarily to women. Ninety-six percent of their customer base is women. And they have around 2.3, 2.5 million customers. The average loan size is $360. Now, they've resolved this problem of risk decisioning and knowing your customer by making group loans. So 10, 12, 14 ladies will get together and borrow that average amount between them in order to start a commercial enterprise. And then they know those customers over 16-week cycles and refresh them. Now, the interesting thing is Compartamos makes more money than most American banks in terms of return on equity and return on assets, and they borrow money more cheaply than the Mexican government. The business model can be extremely robust. So it's very interesting to see how some of these entrepreneurs resolve these problems and build pretty interesting businesses. And this is a business now at scale, 2.3, 2.5 million customers.
0: Wonderful. Good Good to know. And I want before somebody speaks, I want to thank my guests, uh, not for everything you've said, but for bringing in these examples, the names of banks, the countries. This is what we want to hear is case studies and examples. This makes it real for the listeners. So thank you. Who was going to chime in just now?
4: Bonnie was Craig. I was just going Please. to – to to make a, a commoner statement and, and the technology is absolutely there to enable banks to do this as as Simon mentioned. And and so I think we can reduce the risk. We can utilize what other other industries are doing to detect real time fraud. Credit card companies do an outstanding job so looking at transactions, anything out of the norm, any anomalies. So there's really no excuse Of going into these new markets from a technology perspective, it's really of understanding that channel, understanding the new business models, and being able to be flexible and go after this market the correct way. Not because you have to, but as Jane mentioned, as an opportunity to extend the banks and drive new profitability models.
0: Good, good, good. And let's get Ralph in before we finish this segment. Ralph, what are your thoughts on entrance into new players in the banking area? What about new countries, the unbanked? Any other thoughts to yeah, close the segment?
3: Just, just on the unbanked, let's just keep in mind that uh, just because you serve customers doesn't mean you have to give them a loan. There are a lot of other products that are being utilized for the unbanked, simple payments infrastructures are incredibly important to the unbanked, to the migrant workers, to a huge number of people who need those types of products. So it doesn't necessarily mean, because you're dealing with an unbanked person, that you have to take any kind of risk. You can, of course, take risk over time, but you don't necessarily have to take risk initially. And remember, as a banking infrastructure, you're looking for as many customers as you can. Why? Because you can get some behavioral patterns out of it. We have not talked yet about behavioral analysis and understanding the human being like our forefathers did but the truth is is that the more data you have the easier those decisions become
0: Thank you very much, Ralph. Okay, we are just up against our third and final break. When we come back, everybody knows what to expect. It's our crystal ball segment. That means my four esteemed guests are going to polish off that crystal ball, and they're going to look ahead to 2017 or any time in the future they choose and tell us how banks will be facing, handling, and overcoming their big data risks they're facing today in 2017 or You name it. We'll be right back with our final segment here on Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Don't even think of touching that app. Brad out.
1: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. SAP Systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers. Presented by SAP. You can send an email to Bonnie.com. D.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now let's get back to coffee break with game changers.
0: And here we are, and it's time for our crystal ball segment. We're going to kick this off with Simon Paris. Simon, what do you see and can you look ahead a full five years for us into what banks, big data, and risk will look like?
2: You know, I'm going to say something slightly provocative, but um, sometime between next year and five years, I think the the language is going to invert. It used to be, can IT keep up with business? I actually think it's going to invert, and can business keep up with IT, right? Mm. So an example, and I think this will be with us already within the case of one year, and I think it will be ubiquitous within five years, and that's the concept of real, real time. So all that conversation we've had over the last very enjoyable 45 minutes about the volume of data and the speed of data and unstructured data and knowing your customer and risk and compliance and banking and the unbanked, I think it's all going to come together under this banner of real, real time. And what I think it means concretely is that we'll be able to see things which banks haven't been able to do before, which is the segment of one, real time offer management, relationship based pricing, next best offer, leveraging that incredible amount of data that exists to know their customer like never before, and to serve them like never before. And I think from a a business technology speak, I think the language will invert, and let's see if business can keep up with the IT.
0: Simon, next best offer, what does that mean? Please tell me.
2: Yeah, so if I, for example, got my bonus today, wouldn't it be great Mm -hmm. if the bank rang me and said, hey, Simon, last year in December, we saw you put your deposit, your, your bonus on deposit for three months. I'll tell you what, do it today for six months, and I'll give you an extra click of interest. Or, oh, Simon, you know what? If you take the mortgage and you take the life insurance, I'm going to give you the platinum card for free for three years. You know, that kind of real-time offer management, the next best offer, given the relationship they have with me, but doing it in real-time around events that they also know in real-time, real, real-time banking.
0: Very nice, very nice. Getting to know your customer better and not doing it in a bad way, doing it in a good way. We don't want Big Brother, but we want we want a partnership. Ralph Silva. Oh, big brother but five, big Okay. <laughs> well, that's a new concept I haven't heard. Hold on, Ralph, we have some extra time. Simon, go back. Talk to me. Big who?
2: <laughs> no, it was, just a, it was just a joke about Big Mother. You know, we don't want Big Brother watching over us, but we would like somebody looking out for us, right?
0: That's mom. That's mom. Okay, yep. we need mom, mom. moms in banking. Jane, we need more women in banking, that's for sure. We'll talk to you in a moment. Ralph Silva, what do you think? Can you look five years ahead
3: I certainly can. Five years, and I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a vision of five years from now. I'm going to give you a vision of 20 years from now. Five years from now, we're going to see one very simple metric change, and that is the amount of data that we actually analyze. Today, the average bank around the world, the average multinational bank, generates 65 terabits of data every single quarter. That's going to increase. But the metric that's more important is that only, and I repeat, only 14% of that data ever gets processed analytically. The rest of the data sits there useless. In the next five years, we're going to invert that. Of the data that the banks collect, we're going to see 80, maybe even 90% utilization of that data to determine how customers are going to behave. If you look 20 years ahead, we're going to see a dramatic change in the way the financial services industry works and what, what I like to call a branch in your pocket. We're going to have devices. I'm not sure if they're going to be mobile. Mobile phones but they're going to be devices that are going to be location aware and are going to understand what you're doing when you're doing it so let me just give you a quick vision let's say Mm -hmm. you're sitting at a mercedes-benz dealership and you want to buy a car you pull out your phone and on the phone screen it says you have been pre-approved for a loan for a mercedes s-class s-class just give them the device and you can drive away with a car But alternately, it could also say the following. You pick up the phone and say, hello, Mr. Silva, we know you're at Mercedes-Benz, we know how much money you make, and you can't afford anything in this shop. (laughs) Leave the shop immediately, walk down the street 300 meters to a Ford dealership where a Ford Escort is waiting for you and that you can afford. That's the future of banking. It's where decision is made, where the customer needs those decisions to be made, and it's going to be data that's going to be driving that.
0: Ralph, that's not only big mother, that's bene- that's uh, actually tough love. That's big mom with tough love, I think. Very interesting. And, and the other, the, the bad news is that perhaps, Ralph, yes, you, Mr. Silva, you have the money to buy that Jaguar or that Mercedes. Might be an opinion that mom doesn't share, nor does your wife. So that could be a, l- a little bit of a problem there. It's in whose opinion do you have enough money? And was it supposed to cover tuition for your older child for next semester in college? We'll find out. Jane, let's turn to you. I think we're have a little extra time left in this segment. So, Jane, let's do your crystal ball, and then we'll come up with a bonus round question. Can you look five years ahead for me, Jane, in terms of the role analytics will play in the banking industry, re getting rid of, minimizing, mitigating, or just erasing debt, erasing risk? What do you think? Risk. Well, certainly,
5: if you look at the world of digital disruption and mobility and social media and the world of big data applies to – um, banks. There is a short fuse but a big bang for banks. Um and but the um, we talked about earlier the need for an enterprise view, a collective view, a very real time view of my customer and decision making. So the the art of scoring that the banks use today um, is antiquated. That has to change. That has to look at the individual, their future, their position, their location, um, their product mix, their asset mix, and right now we just look at the number of credit cards that you own and how your payment history happened in the past. So revolutionary uh, use of information um, to look at the product offering um, the whether it's that card down the street that they're, they um, um, they need and can afford or if it's the, the, the product packages that we were talking about. I think that the use of that information asset in banks can revolutionize them and bring an enterprise view and the use of analytics to holistically drive those decisions in a both predictive and prescriptive way uh, will take hold in the next five years.
0: Thank you, Jane. Good, good view uh, from the top here. And Craig Rich, why don't you finish up our crystal ball segment for me? Can you look five years? Do you have a different time frame? And what's your view of how risk will be mitigated and the role of analytics in the banking industry? Craig?
4: Sure, sure. So I think, like the panel, I'm feeling positive about where banks are headed. I, I think in five years, Banks are going to have improved, have have drastically improved their uh, data and analytical capabilities. They're going to leverage the new technology. I liked what Ralph said about the inversion of of technology, or actually I think it was Simon who said, you know, technology is going to be whether business can keep up with technology. And I think that Banks are on their way to integrating structured and unstructured data together to truly build that customer-focused enterprise. You know we're working with several institutions now on building that accelerated strategy to harness these capabilities, whether it's in memory analytics, whether it's bringing in structured and and structured data together. I think that they're on their way, and let's not forget there's a huge movement going on in banks on the back office consolidation, standardization of business processes, simplification of systems integrated package banking applications and getting away from best-of-breed solutions, all that together with the technology around analytics and mobility are really going to help banks um, truly differentiate with analytics. I think you're going to see banks start playing a different role in this new ecosystem that we're all describing. I think analytics become a, a true new revenue stream. I think we can expect banks to start collaborating with, with other third parties, whether it's on their platform, whether it's to drive new loyalty type of programs or apps to, to really bring tailored marketing programs and incentives to to their customers. I think they changed the way that they're, that banks are our uh, position today. I don't think they're just for transaction processing. They become more of a boutique um, type of hub where, where people can interact and, and get f- true financial service and advice from banks.
0: Thank you very much, Craig. I had a bonus question. We're almost running short, but if everybody can give me a 10-second answer, we'll play this game. I'll start with, we'll go with, uh, in the original order, we'll go to Simon and Ralph and Jane and Craig. What's the DNA of the banker in the biggest banks in the world who will see and realize the value of analytics in terms of dealing with risk and helping to serve the unbanked around the world, Uh, their age, their education, their gender quickly? Simon, who will that person be? Give me 10 seconds.
2: Great question. I don't want to steal anyone else's thunder, but I think two of the words came up earlier, humility and humanity and thinking about the life cycle relationship.
0: I like that. Okay. Ralph Silva, who will that person be?
3: I think the answer is very simple. It's the interns of today are the ones that are going to make this decision. The people of this generation have a different perception on data. They have a different uh, way of sharing data, and it's going to be people from that generation that are going to make this change.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Jane Griffin, who's this person? DNA. It's it's a woman, of course, um, <laughs>
5: um, who, who holistically looks at her customer and her people and how she builds the best
0: business possible. That's our big mom, or maybe our little mom. And Craig Rich, DNA, fast.
4: That's right. I think it's the, the new generation of these social media, these people blogging and on Facebook. I think that's the customer of tomorrow.
0: Thank you all. Okay. Remember, calling all bankers. You want to be a game changer? Look on our business channel page, and there's a free brochure we have for you on banking innovations. Go get it. It's on us. Time for me to do the crystal ball, yes. Wednesday, December 12th, next week, we're going to talk about the power of small. What does that mean? You're going to hear from some of the winners of a small business competition to hear how they're helping to improve society. How? By creating entrepreneurial opportunities in rural communities, things you never dreamed of. It's a great show just before the holiday. Speaking of the holidays, do I have a surprise for you. We have coming up on December 19th and the 26th, right in the middle of the holidays, we're doing our second annual Game Changers Predictions Special, Part 1 and 2. hate to tell you this, but I just booked 26 guests in the space of four hours. The invitation went out to over 100 former guests, and over 26 said, Yes, Bonnie, count me in. So I'll be telling you next week a little bit about the Game Changers. We'll be telling us what to expect in the world of game-changing everything in 2013. You don't want to miss that. I want to thank my special guest today, Simon Paris, Ralph Silva, Jane Griffin. You've been wonderful, and Craig Rich, of course. And thank you to Patricia harris on Rebel, Malcolm Kimberlin, and the Business Channel team. And one more thing, you know what I'm going to say. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. I'm Bonnie D. Graham for Coffee Break with Game Changers. See you next week on the Business Channel. Bye-bye.